Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is, is Comfort, Comfort Films. Films. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of the Comfort Films podcast. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Papau Kapow Kapow Hot Fuzz. Edgar Wright, 2007, came out on 420 2007 in the United States. How about them apples? So 15 years ago. Yeah, long at time. At this point, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Just means I've been watching this movie nonstop for 15 years. <laughs> there, You know, these are the movies <laughs> worth watching over. I love this movie. It, it is one of my very, very favorites. I might venture to say it is my number one favorite. Um, I would have said for many years that like Monty Python and the Holy Grail probably held that slot. Strong contender. And then when this came out, I kind of pushed it off to the side. I'll show you to the door. And Hot Fuzz was like, I'm here to be number one. So yeah, it's, it's just a great one. And I know I say that about every single movie we do, that it's great or that, you know, it's one of my favorites. But when you said Streets of Fire was your number one. Mm -hmm. And I thought about, like, what's my number one? This really came up. Um, and it's really funny. We decided to do it this week, not realizing this week was the anniversary of the U.S. release date. So, hey, that's cool. Serendipity surrounds us. Also, Edgar Wright's birthday was this week, as that is you correct. found. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. A lot of connections here. A lot of connections. I mean, this movie for me, I I mean, yes, Streets of Fire, definitely number one. I would say with this film, probably in my top 20. That's pretty good. It's very strong. I mean, it I've has, seen thousands. It has a lot of things you don't like, like English people. <laughs> I Look, you know, there was a time where I felt that way, and it was because my father would force me to watch a lot of very proper English drama <laughs> When I wanted to be watching like Batman, yeah. Transformers, A Team, Knight Rider, he did watch those things with me too. But then there were, there were these nights where we would just be trapped in PBS, this yes. PBS kind of hell for this child. And I can understand that. I was not like masterpiece theater fan when I was growing up. Yeah. I do like period pieces and I do like English people in movies and in song as yeah. well. Um, and a little bit of an Anglophile, just because of my background in literature study, probably. But uh, that was just a joke. I know you sometimes will be okay with English people. Yeah. And, of course, this brings a lot of things in that you do like. Like an homage to several different genres of movie. Mm-hmm. Including the kind of action cop movie, which yeah. you enjoy very much. Love the buddy cop movie. I love the buddy cop movie. Yeah. And this is such a nice reimagining of the buddy cop movie. It is. You know, Danny Butterman, you know, that he has my heart because <laughs> I would feel that way <laughs> if I was a small town police officer and then this hot shot top cop came into town and he was my partner. I would be like mouth on the floor <laughs> at all times i'd be like would you like me to get your newspaper sir it's... i would just want some of that action that experience that excitement just to rub off on me just a little bit you know it's great yeah you do have a danny butterman energy yeah in general as mm-hmm. well so i see that 
Um, yeah, I I think like also I love like the action cop movies as well. Yeah, and this is such a kind of a tribute to those. You can really see how well you know Edgar Wright knows movies. Mm-hmm. I think I read something that they actually used like a reference book. He and Simon Pegg wrote this, mm-hmm. so they used like a reference book on like action movie tropes oh that's awesome um, to write this so they kept like bringing in all these tropes Mm -hmm. to make sure they were like hitting all the points and they really do they hit like every one they nailed all the points and what i think is the most interesting thing that you've told me is that there was supposed to be a love interest and they deleted the love interest for nicholas angel simon pegg's character gave all the lines over to butterman to (laughs) danny yes and th- they didn't really change them. Almost no changes. Yes. That's awesome. Which is funny because it, there is kind of like a hero worship feel with Butterman and Angel, but it does like almost turn into like a romance bromance. That's a strong times. bromance. Um, but it, it's so great. And then also, not even touched on yet, this is a huge homage to like the folk horror type film Indeed. as well, especially the British folk horror film Mm -hmm. um like the wicker man right or straw dogs and you brought up an amazing thing that i never knew about the wicker man connection right with wicker man we're looking at robert woodward and he is in this film and he's the head of the neighborhood watch association you know he's the guy you see up at the monitors he was the cop in wicker man in the original in 1973 And what's so neat about that is it's like the reverse, because this time it's like we have a cop coming to a strange land, right? And he is the villain as a policeman tries to figure out what's going on in the town. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. And then you also have, with, with Robert Woodward, he was in a show called The Equalizer in the 80s from 1985 to 1989. And he played this ex-CIA agent who turned into a private detective who just wanted to help people do whatever they needed to be done for justice. And, uh, you know, the greater good, right? Yeah, the greater good. Yeah. And, of course, in this, he is just furious about a living statue. (laughs) I mean, he has his priorities. I mean, you can't argue with the man. A living statue is a blight on the community. (laughs) And the hoodies, the kids in hoods hanging around. Oh, gosh. When Nicholas Angel first meets him, he said he saw a spot of graffiti on the fountain. And he almost goes apoplectic about it. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Right. I mean, well, they love their town. Right? (laughs) Village of the year. How many years running? They love it a little too much. Yeah. So before we get too much further into discussing the particulars of the movie. I did want to give a little synopsis on this. It's so worth watching, and I really want you to go see it, because, of course, as always, we spoil. We're going to talk about the ending of this movie, and the ending of this movie is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, And it's a surprise, and it just is so great um, that it's much better for you to see it than have us just be talking about it. 100%. Um, Yeah. So, that being said... Um, this film is a cop movie, or it starts out as a cop movie, about this top cop, as John said, (laughs) Nicholas Angel, who's a sergeant in the London police, and uh, he has achieved tons of great things. Um, He's one of their best people. 
at the beginning of the movie, they do this montage that just goes through his career and all the great things he's been doing. And I want to point out that the song that they're playing in the background of that Mm -hmm. is Goody Two-Shoes by Adam Ant. Don't drink, don't smoke. (laughs) And that couldn't be more perfect because Nicholas Angel is a Goody Two-Shoes. He follows every rule. He does everything just right. He's Mr. Perfect. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning, they call him into the office, his uh, superior, to tell him that they love what he's been doing and that he's been doing a great job and that they're really excited that they're going to promote him and they're going to send him to the country. So he's going to go to Sanford, which is in Gloucestershire, and it's one of the, um, well, it has been the village of the year for several years running. Best ever. And it's a low-crime area and all these types of things. Well, of course, Nicholas doesn't really want to do that. He's an achiever. He wants to be achieving things. Right. And he thinks the city's where he should be able to do that. He'd be happy to retire to the country, but not until much later. But they're like, no. Um, So (laughs) he kind of demands to see the next higher up person. Um, So his superior initially, the first guy is Martin Freeman. And then they bring in the next guy, which is Steve Coogan, who's hilarious he goes through kind of the same exact conversation yeah. that that Nicholas just had with the Martin Freeman character. How's the hand? Yeah, exactly. He had an injury to his hand. They both ask about this. It's like they have a checklist Oh yeah. that they're going through. And it's funny because Steve Coogan then asks about, you know, his personal relationship with Janine and doesn't realize that that relationship has ended. So he's kind of one step further off. And we should also mention how he got this injury. Yes, he was stabbed through the hand by Father Christmas. (laughs) Played by Peter Jackson. Yes, played by Peter Jackson. (laughs) And, of course, the Janine that I just mentioned that was the ex-love interest Mm -hmm. um, is actually played by Kate Blanchett. Both Peter Jackson and Kate Blanchett, pretty much unrecognizable. Yeah. Jackson, because he's dressed in this ratty... Santa Claus suit and Kate Blanchett because she's playing a crime scene tech with the mask and the full like hazmat suit on. Yeah. Um, and they make a huge joke out of that when Nicholas goes to see her um, because people can't tell each other apart in this crime scene. Um, but yeah, so when Steve Coogan is talking to him, you know, again, they tell him that they, you know, are excited for him to have this opportunity And he still wants to talk to somebody about it because he still doesn't feel good about this. So they make a big deal about, oh, you want us to bring the chief down here? Really? You know, he's a busy man. Yeah. And he demands to see the chief, thinking it's going to take some time. The chief is right outside the door. He comes right in. (laughs) They were ready for it. They were ready for it. They knew exactly what was going to happen here. And the chief is played by Bill Nighy, who's unbelievably hilarious and everything Mm -hmm. i think my first time recognizing him or knowing him for something was when he was in love actually yes that was the one and that's a killer killer part he was so funny in that and he's hilarious in this too playing the chief asks the same questions again how's the hand etc and then he kind of gets down to the brass tacks and explains that You know, they have a reason why they need Nicholas to be removed 
from the London PD. And it's funny because you've, you know, if you're me and John, you've watched a lot of these cop movies. And the mm -hmm. reason, and like in every cop movie at the beginning, the cop is getting in trouble. Yeah, like he has a disciplinary problem, yeah. not following procedure, poor attitude, yeah. addiction. Property destruction. Some kind of scandal, one. like they, they maybe theft, they're, they're like thought to be you know, involved in a crime themselves. Yeah. yeah something really. Like, what comes to mind for me is always the Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop with the amazing chief who's always yelling at him. So good. That guy's so the good. most funny person, I swear. But yeah, so I think about that. But, you know, the reason that Nicholas is being removed is because he's doing too good of a job. <laughs> he's making everybody look bad, they say. Um, His arrest record is too good. He's doing too phenomenal of a job, and it's kind of like, you know, the smart kid in class who's ruining the curve for everyone. Yeah. So, that's why they're sending him away to Sanford. Um, he goes to tell Janine, and again, this is the scene where, you know, she's at the crime scene, and it's hilarious because he starts talking to someone and pouring his heart out to them, and it's not her. So, I would totally do that. So I'd then totally he figures out who she is <laughs> and starts talking to her. And at some point during this conversation, she reveals that she's dating another crime scene tech. And he kind of looks over to the guy and she's like, oh, I would never date him. It's the other guy. And then it's obviously another guy who looks exactly the same. They all have the same stuff on. It's a super funny scene. Um, and... It's all great in this because they're playing it very straight. Mm -hmm. Like, everything is played very straight, but it's all very funny. Well, and it also was funny when we look at that scene now. Because I remember in 2007, when I saw people in these head-to-toe suits and these goggles, when you could barely see anything of the person, I could see how easy it would be to not know who was who. Yeah. But now, since we've been through this pandemic, we're still riding this pandemic... <laughs> I've realized that I'm able to tell who people are by very little information, if you will. <laughs> Comparatively, yes. We yeah. kind of had to do that. Although it is still funny because there are people that we've met during the pandemic and when we see them without their mask on, like we don't even recognize who they are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's insane. I mean, it's just like, I don't know. Things have really just changed around under the hood, you know? <laughs> When they remove the mask, it's not what you remember. No, well, yeah, the people that you already knew, you're looking at them like, is that what their face always looked like? Yeah. But we had another situation where I kept getting a recommendation to be friends with someone on Facebook, mm -hmm. and I saw the person, they looked vaguely familiar, and I was like, I don't know. And then through, you know, our mutual friends, I figured out who the person was, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll befriend her. And, uh, <laughs> but it's because I'd never seen her entire face before. I didn't know who she was. Later on, a few days later, I saw her in person and she said, Georgia, I got your friend request and it was so funny. It took me a really long time to figure out who you were and how I knew you because I'd never seen you with your mask off. <laughs> so she had exactly the same feeling as yeah. me. <laughs> It's so insane. I love it. It's so well, insane. And it has to be hard for you because you really always would just identify people by like their 
snout and mouth area. That is something I do always look at that's true. You were always the eye person. I'm definitely an eye person. So for me, it's a little bit easier. But yeah, you always, you know, John and I are always looking at, at actors Especially, like, saying, oh, this person looks like this person from history, you know? Right. Like, this, like, Pedro Pascal really looks like Burt Reynolds. Yeah. You know? Like, he's the really new does. Burt Reynolds. So, we'll we'll look at somebody like that. So, when John would say that he thinks somebody looks like somebody, I always am like, nah, but then I look at their mouth and nose and chin, and I'm like, okay, no, I get it. And he has to do the same thing for me. He has to look at their eyes. And then he's like, oh, I get it. But it's like we're looking at two totally different parts of the face. Well, and I mean, I never even knew what eye color people had before this, you know? Like, I just, for some reason, never really processed eyes. That's so you funny. Know? Yeah. I mean, it's changed now. Like, now I would say I have about a 35% success rate <laughs> in remembering what eye color people have. It's, uh, yeah, it's just such a big change. And it's, I, I love looking back at something and just feeling this different reaction. Yeah, totally different reaction this time because I feel the same way. I think that I would have been able to tell the person very quickly this time, yeah. whereas back then, probably not. Yeah. But yeah, so that's very funny. But yeah, back to the movie. Nicholas, you know, explains to his ex-girlfriend that he's moving to the country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she says, okay, whatever. They're, they're broken up, you know, so she's kind of doesn't matter. To, it doesn't matter to her. And so then we see him take many forms of transit to get way out in the boondocks. Long ride. Long <laughs> ride. With his Japanese peace lily in tow. Yes. This is... Like his most prized possession. It's like his blanket, his security blanket. Yes. And so he finally gets there, checks into a hotel because his house isn't ready yet. Right. And uh, then, you know, he starts to get to know this town and starts to uh, just realize that the idyllic nature of it may not quite be the truth. And in his way, because he's this brilliant detective and police officer he starts to realize that that's just kind of the surface of the town and what's happening below the surface is much more sinister well and again the casting comes into play here because edgar wright knows so much media yes in this film we have belloc the villain from raiders of the lost ark Yes, you know, and as a minister. He, right. Reverend Philip Shooter. <laughs> <laughs> Which comes into play later, yeah. the name Shooter, uh, because he does some shooting <laughs> yeah. at the end. Yeah, he's got like a gun up each sleeve. You know, <laughs> it's amazing. It's really good. It's really good. And he's just like totally blasphemous at the end of the film in the shootout. <laughs> That's the best thing. You know, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, he says, like, fuck you to them, and then he gets shot, and as he's falling, he goes, Jesus Christ! <laughs> that just makes me laugh every time. It's so horrendous. And he has the collar on and the black robe. Like, he is yeah, in, he's in full his garb. outfit. Yeah, he's got his gear on. I mean, we also have the major villain from Lethal Weapon 3, Stuart Wilson, and he plays Dr. Robin Hatcher. 
yes. another villain. So it's like these people, I think, somewhere in the back of your mind, you'll remember, you know, you're like, I, I think I know this person, but I'm not sure. And I think by the time, you know, it would hit you would be around the time, you know, that you're really finding out what's going on in this town. Yes. And, you know, this is the great thing. I didn't actually realize that all these people had these connections to these other movies. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you look at it, it's it does again show you like how smart Edgar Wright is and how well versed he is on film. Yeah, that he can take all of these different things and kind of mash them together, pull in all these actors who have this brilliant history. Yeah, and put them together into this one thing. That itself is a very well done, very smart, very good story. Mm -hmm. And it does actually have all the elements of being like a good detective story and a good like folk horror story that takes place, you know, in the uh, village, you know, a small, quiet village in England. And it also delivers on the action front. And we can't forget... We actually have Timothy Dalton, a James Bond in the film, as another villain. Yes. Simon Skinner. The amazing Simon Skinner. He is amazing. Anytime he shows up on screen, it's like I need to like lock it down because I want to hear everything and make sure I'm paying attention to everything. He's a genius in this movie. Mm -hmm. He is so perfect uh, at being like, gleeful about how much bad is going on yeah and you know that's what really sets nicholas off on thinking that things aren't an accident is just seeing how happy skinner which is timothy dalton's character name is at all of these different happenings which i guess we'll get into in a little bit more detail as we go through um but yeah when <laughs> When Nicholas shows up at the station, um, well, actually the night that he shows up, he goes to the pub and is only drinking cranberry juice. Mm -hmm. And he proceeds to basically round up and kick out all of these underage kids yeah. who are in the bar drinking and also uh, arrest this extremely drunk patron who he t ends up taking back to the drunk tank. And the funny thing is, after he's, like, run out all of the kids, he's, like, the only person in the bar, practically, and the, the barkeeps are super pissed. Yeah, well, it's because it's like, there's their money for the night. Yeah, they have know? no more business. And they're like, do you want another cranberry juice? <laughs> <laughs> they're, like, so mad at him. But, yeah, so he takes this drunk in, and then the next morning when he comes in to check on him, he finds out that the drunk is actually PC Danny Butterman, who is another police officer and the son of the police chief who's played by Jim Broadbent and is phenomenal. So Butterman is Nick Frost. So Nick Frost and Simon Pegg had our friends in real life, I believe, and they worked together in the show Spaced, which is a great show. That was a great show, yeah. Um, and they had also been together in Shaun of the Dead, mm -hmm. which was kind of the first of these three movies that Edgar Wright kind of referred to as the Cornetto Trilogy. Yeah. And it's kind of based on the three colors, red, white, blue films that this French director made. That's so smart. <laughs> but he decided to make the three colors 
red, white, and mint green. (laughs) Based on the colors of the different Cornetto ice cream treats that are sold in the UK. Um, These are kind of like the Nutty Buddy or Drumstick ice cream cones that you can buy like in the in the freezer i tear down nutty buddies (laughs) i tear them down well i thought they were i always call them drumsticks but like i think it's the same principle it's like an ice cream cone there's ice cream and then the top has some kind of nuts or caramel or chocolate on top a little bit of all that yeah yeah but the these ones there's three i don't know if they have more than three flavors but the three flavors that they're referring to Shaun of the Dead is supposed to be the red strawberry type flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the white, like vanilla type flavor. Okay. And then The World's End, which is the third of the movies, is the mint kind of green okay. flavor, which is tied to like science fiction. So, because it's like a science fiction movie. And that kind of makes sense. Like, the red is like the zombie movie, the green is like the sci fi movie, and the white is this kind of you know, classic cop action movie. The blanks in The World's End, those were also green, right? I don't know if they were green or if I would call it kind of a bluish. Okay. I think they were more blue. Okay. But the green has kind of like that alien kind of feel. Like Like a potion. Like little green men. Okay. Think about. Yeah. So. That's so smart because I never... Like, I never would have put that together, that he was doing a takeoff on those other three films that were named after a color. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. That's so great. So, yeah, like I was also saying a minute ago, (laughs) before we get off track again, um, Danny is the drunk. Um, He's a, a police officer. And his father, as we find out, Frank Butterman, is actually the chief. Mm hmm. And the funny thing is that, you know, Nicholas is incensed that, like, this police officer was drinking and was about to drive. And yeah. Almost, almost ran him. him over. Yeah, yeah, right? Almost hit him with the car. And <laughs> so he wants to kind of make a stink about it. And, you know, Frank explains that he's already been punished because he had to buy this Black Forest Gateau that everyone is eating in the in the scene and he's like all you did was make him buy cake he's like oh no that was for another indiscretion he's gonna have to do much more for this and nicholas is like oh good and then he's like i hope you like ice cream because i think there's gonna be a lot of chunky monkey around here for the entire rest of the month (laughs) so it's just more dessert and the funny thing is like every time we are in the in the police station people are eating dessert yeah well, and I also want to point out the wonderful Frank and Danny Butterman photo oh, yes. as cowboys. Yes. Well, uh, it's an actual picture of Nick Frost as a little kid. Oh, my God. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. That's even better. That's even better. And they show him with that same hat later, but it's like he's big and grown up and it's like tiny on his head now. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. This is what I, this is another thing I love about this is that they plant a lot of seeds that they harvest later mm-hmm. in the film. Um, and I really love that. That's what gives this a lot of rewatchability to me because I feel like you're watching it and you, you don't notice on every viewing all of the amazing things 
that they've done. No. It's something that you catch a little bit here and there, so that really makes it easy to rewatch and get something different every time. And I love that. Well, Martin Blower and Eve Draper are two of my favorites. Oh, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't they be? Because it's just so wonderfully absurd and yet right on the money. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. So this is kind of one of the first things that Nicholas ends up doing. So, you know, his the first reaction to him by the other cops at the station is that he thinks he's some hot shit because he's yeah. come up from London. He's like a big city cop and... They give him a lot of crap about that. Mm -hmm. um, and they try to, you know, they go out to the pub to have a drink and talk. And that's when Danny kind of begins to realize that Nicholas is kind of this hero type figure for him. Right. Who's experienced all of these things that he's only seen in the movies. Because Danny loves being a police officer, but he feels like he's missing something. Because he's never seen action. He's never had any of these things happen. So he's kind of just following Nicholas around, asking him all these questions like, have you ever been, have you ever had to shoot someone? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done this? Have you ever shot your gun up in the air while saying, ah, like in Point Break? <laughs> and of course, Nicholas doesn't know any of those stuff because he's never seen any of these movies. And Danny is horrified that he's never seen any of these movies. Yeah. But he just is so in awe of this actual cop who's done the things that he has only seen in the movies. And, you know, they end up partnering. So he goes out and, and he's asking him all these questions all the time. And it's very, very funny. And at one of those points, they're in the car looking for speeders. And the speeder comes by driving very fast and it's this guy who is wonderfully awful um who's named martin blower and he's a local solicitor who is playing romeo in a community theater production of romeo and juliet and he clearly appears to be 20 to 30 years off uh to <laughs> if, play romeo if not more yeah I if mean, not more they really made him look very old in this they did i don't even think that guy looks that old in no. real life but he they made him look elderly in this and he really <laughs> shouldn't be playing it he looks like he has like dyed hair yeah like he's probably gray but he's dyed it and the woman that he's in the car with, actually, while they're speeding, is his Ro is his Romeo and Juliet co-star, Eve Draper, played by Lucy Punch, who's amazingly funny. She has a horrible laugh in yeah. this. <laughs> Super obnoxious. Well, that leads to her death. Yes, it does. Um, but yeah, so they catch them speeding, and Martin Blower tries to get out of it, um, in a lot of different ways, but he also ends up leaving them tickets for this community theater production, and Nicholas says they're not going to take them because it's a, a bribe, and mm. he rips them in half and says that they'll never do that, and then two seconds later, Frank Butterman comes out and gives them tickets to the Romeo and Juliet <laughs> and says that they need to go to represent, you know, the police officers at the show so they go to it and it's a really funny scene because this romeo and juliet is awful it's like based on romeo plus juliet like the boz lerman movie with yeah. leonardo dicaprio and claire danes claire danes and remember how much younger those people yes. are in yeah. that movie 
than Martin Blower. Yeah. Who's like a middle-aged solicitor. And it's totally ridiculous. And it's clear that Eve and Martin are having a an affair. Oh. It's silly. It's a very funny thing. But my favorite part is after the show is, after like the play is over, they do this dance to like the Love Fool song right. by the Cardigans. Yes. From the movie. And they're doing like this really fast, like peppy version of it while they're <laughs> dancing, even though they've just, you know, died at the end of the play. Super funny. Yeah, it's, th- I would love to see the entire production. Oh, God. Because just seeing, you know, the final scene of the play and the curtain call is wonderful. I don't know if I could sit through it. I think I might die. Oh, man. I'd be all in. I've seen a very bad Macbeth, and it was really hard to sit through. I don't know if I could do a really bad Romeo and Juliet. I've <laughs> I've sat through a few things. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I like the idea of community theater, but sometimes it doesn't live up to the promise. Look, I mean, I have, you know been in great things i've been in things that were 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 fine i've been in things that really kind of missed the mark so i mean i've i've seen those things and i've been a part of those things so i've lived both sides of it (laughs) and it's like when you think back on the productions that you've been in that really are just just bottom of the barrel (laughs) those seem to be the best memories well that's good that you had fun Yeah, I mean, how many people can say that they were in a production so bad that the homeless left to go back out into the New England winter? (laughs) Well, that is very bad. Like, that's terrible. That is very bad. That's about as terrible as it gets. And I think about that often, and I laugh. Yeah, like saying no to a free meal. Well, no, they ate the meal. They did eat the meal, and then and then they split. But they, they didn't want to leave any extra time in there, and I don't blame them, you know? Well, anyway. This community theater is supposed to be a big feather in Sanford's cap. Yeah. But, unfortunately, it's not. And it's very funny, because the complaint that is voiced more than once is that Eve Draper and Martin Blower are terrible actors, and they actually have professional actors, mm-hmm. you know, as understudies. Yes. Because one of them was an extra in Straw Dogs. Of course. And the other played a, a cadaver in Prime Suspect. That's, I mean, those are legit creds. <laughs> and so, you know, they hear that multiple times. Uh, but what actually happens is that uh, the next day... Eve Draper and Martin Blower are found dead yes. in the road mm-hmm. as the result of what appears to be a traffic collision. Yes. You can't call it an accident because of the uh, vocab guidelines. Keep us on our toes. Very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really enjoy that recurring joke um, that Nicholas, again, follows everything by the book to the letter always. So he has to use like the official vocab guidelines mm-hmm. from the police uh standard so you can't say police force because it implies you know violence so it has to be called the police service yeah and you can't call a traffic accident an accident it has to be called a collision because an accident implies that no one was at fault and there was fault so it's very funny that he keeps explaining that but yeah 
calling this a traffic collision is a little bit of an understatement because there's like decapitated heads on the roadway. You don't really see that very often. <laughs> no. You know, I, I've seen a lot of car accidents. I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> yeah, so they find that and, you know, at the time that they're investigating it, here comes Simon Skinner. It's just Timothy Dalton riding up in his convertible playing the song Romeo and Juliet by, what is it, Dire Straits? Yes, it's yeah. by Dire Straits. So, <laughs> it's like a little twinge in Nicholas's head thinking, how does he know who this who died, you know, because it wasn't obvious. <laughs> it's just Timothy Dalton, Simon Skinner. Again, like you said, there's this real glee. There's this real enjoyment. Oh, yeah. And then you just have this this ballad playing. That... Well, and not only does the ballad play, but he also says, never was there a tale of more wo woe than that of Julia and her Romeo. It's, <laughs> that's Oscar worthy right there. Oh my God, he was so funny. Yeah. But yeah, so then they move, you know, we move on and a lot of other accidents keep happening. Mm-hmm. And it seems like these accidents are happening with people who are the people that nobody likes. Right. So you have this guy who is kind of a real estate developer who has kind of a McMansion-style house mm -hmm. that everybody's complaining doesn't fit with the village's rustic aesthetic. <laughs> and one night he goes home from the bar drunk and blow the house blows up, you know, and it's like, well... That was convenient. Mm. Then we have uh, the newspaper reporter who has a terrible uh, way of putting typos in the paper right. all the time. <laughs> One of the things that he did was interview Nicholas, and he spelled his name Nicholas Angle. So everyone at the police department keeps calling him Angle instead of Angel. Yeah. <laughs> and they're always ready to get him anyway. Um, we haven't even talked about, like, all the different people at the police station, but that's one of the best parts of the movie to me, are, like, the Andes, mm -hmm. which is Rafe Spall and Patty Considine, and they're called the Andes because they're both called Andy, and <laughs> everybody <laughs> thinks this is some great joke. Yeah. We have, like, a, before she was much more famous, Olivia Coleman as Doris Thatcher, the one police woman and again, they that's against official police vocab guidelines, but she doesn't care because she likes to be the woman around the place. And they make some of the most horrible sexist jokes. Oh, yeah. And sexual jokes about her. Yeah. And she makes even worse ones than they make about her. Mm -hmm. It's very funny. It's just a completely crazy police station there's no real order there <laughs> no. and like you say they're always eating they're eating cake they're eating ice cream they're always having sweets they have like a swear jar where they have to put money in if they say different words right and the best part is that like all the words are like written for how and that says how much you have to put in for each word mm -hmm. and all the words are like um kind of censored out Except for the last one, which is arguably the worst word, the C word, yeah, is written out just fully, whereas like the F word has like an asterisk in it, and all these other words have, you know, some sort of censorship. That one's just on there. 
That's fucking great. It does great. cost the most. <laughs> so fucking great. <laughs> That's really funny. Oh, man. But, yeah, this, this is great. But the Andes have a real problem with Nicholas. They really think that he, you know, thinks he's so great and so much better than them. So they have a real chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And they call him Angle after he's in the papers, Angle. Cock Angle. Yeah, and they call him Nicholas. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, but yeah, so the third person to die is the newspaper reporter, mm-hmm. again in an accident, supposedly. Um, there's actually a little fair going on at the church to fix the roof, like a fundraiser. And part of the roof falls off. And straight into this guy's head. That makes the most gross possible way. That makes me laugh every time. Like, (laughs) you know, like it's just so stupid because it's like the piece of the the church falls off and it's like square at the bottom and it comes to a point and it just lands like the point lands dead center in the middle of his head and it just explodes like a tomato. (laughs) The point goes into his body and it's like he has a stone head for a second. Yeah, before he keels over. It kind of wobbles around. I mean... It's like, I don't know, it's one of those things that it's like, it, it's gross out funny, but it to me it's hilarious. It is funny, but yeah, again, I will, we should, I guess, point out that this is a very gruesome movie. There's a lot of blood and guts in different parts. Kind of reminds me of like Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Okay. You know, because that movie was hilarious, yet it was very gruesome. I've actually never seen it. No kidding. No. Okay, we're going to have to do that. You know, they got Peter Jackson in this, so I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they were thinking about that when yeah. they did this. But yeah, there's a lot of blood, a lot of guts, a lot of brain matter, <laughs> different different nasty things in this. They don't really pull any punches on that front. And they also have a fantastic mystery. Yes. Because, you know, it's not something that I would have figured out. No. No, I don't think I would have either. I mean, you're looking at all these things, and, and just like Nicholas, I think you're looking for it to be bigger than it actually ends up being. Yeah. Because the reason behind all of these things ends up being that these people are, you know, afraid that, that these mistakes or these bad things that are happening um, are going to detract from them being named Village of the Year. And that's it. Like, yeah. that's the sum total. Eve Draper and Martin Blower died because they were terrible actors. <laughs> Tim Messenger died because he's a horrible newspaper reporter and he can't spell to save his life. Yep. You know, there's no conspiracy on land ownership, all these things. And, you know, they end up killing the florist, Leslie Tiller, who's a very well-loved member of town. But they end up killing her because she wants to move to another town and they can't let her talent go over to those people at Buford Abbey. No way. And they also kill the uh, the corporate supermarket owner. He was going to build like a, a strip mall type thing mm-hmm. that was going to, you know, be ugly and bad. And it wasn't that they were worried about. It wasn't like Simon Skinner, who is the local grocery store owner. He wasn't actually afraid that... You know, the business was going to go away. They were just disgusted of the idea of building a big strip mall, corporate-type place, in their cute little village of the year. So, that's, you know, the crazy motive that happens. And they all kind of meet, and 
and have these like, you know, late night black cloak clad circle around the stone table meetings. Why is it that like black cloaks are so scary to me? Like <laughs> if I see someone with a black cloak, I am terrified. It's just because you associate it with the image of death, probably. Yeah, like the Grim Reaper, and yeah. then you know we had uh, the Ghostface Killer, like yes. in in uh, Scream. Scream. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like there's just something about this cloak. I can't see your face. We had a similar thing in a uh, uh, young Sherlock Holmes as well. Yeah, it, it's just like if I can't see you. I don't know. It really, ooh, it's like, what's in there? What's underneath? And the fact that there are multiple killers yeah. in this. Well, and that's what, it works with this because yeah. they're all running around and they're anonymous, basically, mm-hmm. because the whole thing is that Nicholas thinks that he has it and that it's definitely Skinner. And when he goes to arrest him, he realizes that he doesn't have, like, the wound on his leg that would have proven conclusively that that was him. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because he was only one of probably three people or so who participated in the murder of the florist Leslie Tiller. Well, and you get the feeling when you see that meeting that everyone has killed someone. Because there's, like, this cave. There's, like, this underground <laughs> passage that just has the bodies of all of these people. Yeah, so all the kids who were, like, hanging out at the pub uh, underage, they're down there dead. You see these um, caravanners that they were very mad about. They mm-hmm. were the crusty jugglers. The crusty jugglers. Crusty jugglers. And then <laughs> you see the previous cop who um nicholas actually replaced and we could tell it's him because he has a great bushy beard and that was what (laughs) at one point earlier in the movie and this is what i'm talking about with planting the seeds and so and you know harvesting them later frank butterman tells nicholas that the previous sergeant didn't have or, or he had something that Nicholas doesn't have. And Nicholas is like, oh, what's that? Thinking it's going to be, you know, some character flaw that he has that, you know, he needs to develop. And Frank Butterman says, a great big bushy beard. (laughs) So when Nicholas falls into like this cavern with all these dead bodies, one of them is a police sergeant with a big beard. And then, of course, the evil living statue is down there, too. Yeah. Frozen in place with his gold paint still on. (laughs) It's, I I mean, you get so many laughs from the characters in town and then you see them, you know, at this, this neighborhood watch association meeting and, and they're terrifying. Yeah. You know, and, and then you realize these people that would give you a chuckle are capable of the most horrendous things. Yeah. Yeah. And they think they're justified in what they're doing. Because of the greater good. That's what they keep saying. They keep saying the greater good. And, and they never say it once without repeating it. Yeah. So every time one character says it, the entire group ends up repeating it. And it's just that's all they believe in. They think that the ends justify the means. As long as they win the village of the year, then it's fine. And we then find out that the that Frank Butterman is actually kind of the mastermind mm-hmm. behind the whole thing because his wife had tried to 
um, win Village of the Year. She was the first person that kind of put in the effort to try to get Sanford noticed yeah. this way. And the day before the judges came, uh, this caravan moved in with all the crusty jugglers and ruined their chances, which led her to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of drove Frank to this. And the sad thing is Danny is actually involved as well because his dad, you know, is in charge. So he ends up, you know, playing a role in trying to bring down Nicholas, although he does change his mind and and ends up like, again, another planted seed earlier he does like a ketchup packet joke where he like has a ketchup packet and he holds it over his eye and stabs it with a fork. Mm-hmm. And later he stabs Nicholas and it looks like he's really stabbed him, but he's actually just stabbed through a ketchup packet Yeah, to make it look like it um, just to help him get away. But then of course Nicholas comes back and we have the amazing showdown that we have in every kind of cop movie, I think where the cop comes in or, you know, Rambo or any of these movies where it's like, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone or, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme or whoever it is. Seagal. Clint Eastwood, maybe Clint even. Eastwood. Where they just put on like a million guns. Yeah. And they go out to fight the bad guys. And I mean, in this case, it's completely over the top. He's got, like, double guns strapped to his back, tons of bullets hanging off of him, and he's actually riding a horse. Yep. And there's another joke that's very good around here, too, because earlier, you know, they were talking about, uh, this is, like, at the very beginning when Nicholas is talking to the other cops in Sanford when he's just moved there, and they're saying, you know, people didn't have guns in London, but out here in the country everybody's got guns mm-hmm. and you know he's like well who he's like farmers but they said everybody and their mom has a gun out here and he's like like who and they're like farmers <laughs> and farmers moms <laughs> well when nicholas comes back into town the first thing that he does is he has a confrontation with a farmer and the farmer's mom comes out with a gun and tries to kill him so and then he kicks her in the face which is hilarious then he goes and straps on a million guns and goes into the middle of town where the judges for the village of the year are actually, you know, about to be and starts a huge gunfight with the Neighborhood Watch Association people yeah. who are all basically like elderly and just come out blazing guns. Yeah, they're very fierce. I mean, it's... The woman that comes by on the bicycle and With then pulls two pistols. right, yeah, she pulls them out of I think her basket in the front. Yeah. Very good. She's a school teacher, I think. You have Mister Treacher, who earlier Nicholas was saying was suspicious because he has a big coat, and Danny laughed because he's known this person for his whole life and doesn't think it's suspicious at all. Well, the guy whips his coat open and pulls out a huge gun. Yeah, and then of course we talked about the cop. The doctor, like all these people have these guns. Mm-hmm. This one woman who runs like the corner store has like a, a sniper rifle and goes up <laughs> into the top floor. 
Oh man, it's that's a, one of the best shootouts in any movie ever. It was fully unexpected, and I like that we just kept escalating. Yeah. When we were at the theater and we got to that point of the shootout where everyone in town was trying to take them down, it was like a dream come true for me. <laughs> you know, like I love absurd action. Yeah, and oh boy, this was it. It was it, and I was laughing so hard I was literally falling out of the chair. <laughs> I didn't have any breath left inside of my body, you know, to make it through. <laughs> like Death Wish 3 with Charles Bronson has an absolutely insane shootout at the ending as well. But this takes that and just brings it up so much that you're just like, I love you. Like, I love the action in this. I mean, we have, you know, the priest, right? Paul Freeman, Reverend Philip Shooter, right? Who, like, you know, tries to get Nicholas and Danny to calm down. You know, like, oh, you know, we don't need to do this. And then, like, <laughs> and then, you know, Shooter changes his mind and he's like, fuck you. And he pulls out a gun from each sleeve and is shooting at him. Yeah. And then he gets shot. <laughs> and as he is shot, he's falling to the ground. He goes, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> and he has on the collar and he's got on, you know, the, the full garb. It's great. And then you have, like, again, our, our other big villain. I mean, that was Belloc right there, Reverend Philip Shooter. And then we also have Dr. Robin Hatcher, Stuart Wilson, the villain from Lethal Weapon 3. You know, and he comes out, you know, and they end up getting him in the foot. Danny does, which is the second time he shot him in the foot. <laughs> which he accidentally so shot him earlier in the movie. And in this, he, like, throws his shotgun down and it fires off and shoots him right in the foot. <laughs> Takes him down again. And they're like, deal with it, you're a doctor. Yeah. And then this guy, who I don't know who he is, shows up with a sword. I don't know who that guy is, but he's a VP, VIP for me. Yeah, it's like this elderly man that doesn't even seem like he has very good mobility. <laughs> and he's swinging like this old saber. <laughs> like, it does look like a saber. It's like a dress sword or something. It doesn't cut anything. And it he lands has like in a, a book. weird like, mustache. Yes. Like, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's so strong. It's so strong that I think that this movie alone for that shootout, you know, is in the upper echelon. Yeah. You know? Well, and then, like, they end up moving away from that, like, I guess, town square type of area into the model village, which is, like, a big deal. The oh, big, yeah. It's, like, a big tourist attraction for them, the model village. And that's where um, the showdown between Skinner and Nicholas happens. And also Frank and Danny are mm -hmm. both there too. And they have a confrontation because Frank is really upset that Danny has turned against him. Yeah. And this is where Danny gets to have his big point break moment where he's chasing after Frank and he can't shoot him. So he just shoots his gun up in the air and goes, ah. <laughs> it's you know it, it's a meaningful moment because you think about it i mean you know if you had to take down one of your parents well and his mother already passed away yeah. you know so his dad is all he had 
and they have a close relationship because Frank Butterman is actually a very good person, except for the whole murdering lots of people to win Village of the Year thing. <laughs> yeah, except the vanity, <laughs> you know, homicidal rage, you know. Well, but it's and fine. he ends up getting taken out by none other than the Swan, who we haven't mentioned. Oh yes. <laughs> this, there's a running joke throughout the movie that. One of the first things that Nicholas has to deal with when he becomes a cop in Sanford is that he receives a phone call from uh, Mr. Peter Ian Staker, and he that's reporting that the swan is missing, and he thinks that this is a joke call, and he's like, P- Peter Ian Staker, P.I. Staker, piss taker, <laughs> and then we cut to him. <laughs> Actually meeting with Mr. Staker and apologizing and taking a description of the swan. (laughs) Uh, But the swan keeps showing up. So when they, like right before the real estate developer guy's house blows up, the swan is walking out front. And the Andes love that. They really shove it up Nicholas's butt about the swan that he hasn't found yet. Um, there's another funny part where they're looking for the swan and Danny is like honking, like trying to draw the (laughs) swan out. I mean, there's a lot of good swan stuff and, you know, they're driving in chase to the model village and they see the swan and they stop and put it in the car because he he has to still solve that case too. So I, I love everything with Piss Taker and the swan. Piss Taker used to be one of my favorite jokes in the movie. I think it got to the point where I've laughed about it so much that I kind of just have a fondness now and I don't have the belly laugh anymore. Uh-huh. But it's just because I've had it so much for so long. That's Stephen Merchant actually plays Piss Taker. A lot um, of good, good people in this. Yes, there are. There are a ton of good people. I mean, and the more we talk about it, the more I'm thinking about all the many, many things I love about this movie and how, you know, I could just keep talking about it forever. We didn't talk about... The other thing that still makes me laugh every time is this one scene that is the Cornetto scene of the movie where they both have Cornetto cones that they bought at the store and they're sitting in the car and Nicholas kind of feels like he's giving up at this point and he's just gonna, you know do what everybody wants him to do and not be like a top cop. He's just going to, you know, stumble along like everybody else. And then right at that moment, he like realizes a big thing. That's like a break in the case. And he's like, tells Danny who's driving the cop car. Oh, we have to go do whatever. And Danny just like really tries to like shove the whole ice cream cone in his mouth (laughs) at that point because he can't, like put it down (laughs) (laughs) so he just like always tries to eat the whole thing and then he gets an ice cream headache from it and it just (laughs) kills me every time i think nick frost is ridiculously funny in this Mm -hmm. he does like the clyde from uh any which way you can every which any which way but loose and every which way you can I get them mixed up every single time. It's okay. But I think in, in Shaun of the Dead, he like actually does a full impression of Clyde and says that's what he's doing. But in this, he kind of just does it 
without saying, but he does, like, the clap with, like, the monkey hands. Or the orangutan hands, I guess. And it's great. It's so good. It's so good. I mean, my favorite part of the movie is when they actually have the siege of Skinner's supermarket. Oh, yes. I think that is, like, you know, we've had a whole shootout in the town, which is wonderful. And then we go to the supermarket where we have like our most physically strong villain yes michael Mm -hmm. who they keep saying has the mind of a child Mm -hmm. the only thing we see him say throughout the movie is yarp yeah um this is played by rory mccann who was the hound in game of thrones excellent very good actor yes and in this he's kind of just this giant oaf kind of guy who doesn't really talk, but it's just kind of like Simon Skinner's muscle. Mm-hmm. So he sends him out to beat people, you know, to beat up at one point Nicholas. And Nicholas has to pretend to be him over the radio. Yeah. And he says, Yarp, Yarp. And then they ask him a no answer question, and he's like, Narp. <laughs> <laughs> and that turns out to be the right answer. So they buy it, which is great. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they have like the the dual butchers, you know, oh, yeah. throwing all the knives that they have at them. And then they actually get the idea of putting together all the shopping carts <laughs> and using it as a battering ram to kind of smash through the glass. You know, whenever I see like, you know, that that butcher deli area, <laughs> I always think that glass is so thick. It is thick, yeah. Like I think you would be safe back there. Like do you think it's bulletproof? I don't think it's bulletproof, but it does seem like it's very strong. So I do think it would be hard yeah to punch through and these guys kind of are like hiding behind it like it is bulletproof. And they're throwing things out and doing all this stuff. And it was really funny because at this point, all the cops have kind of bound, banded together. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually support Nicholas now. Yeah. And they are with them on the team. So they're all in there. And that's another really funny part where the Andes are there, you know, and they're running in. And when... <laughs> You know, you hear this explosion, and Patty Constantine, like, turns around, and his face is all covered in red, and the other Andy Rafe's fall freaks out, and Patty Constantine's like, it's just bolognese, because, <laughs> like, it's just like spaghetti sauce has exploded on him. So freaking hilarious. The Andes are funny. The scene where um, it's the aftermath, I believe, of the church picnic um kills me every time so it's just a visual joke where they're both in frame and they both like bring their heads back like out of frame but then patty constantly like brings his back in really quick yeah just to kind of give it one more snide snarl <laughs> i laugh at that one every time too that one kills me Very so fun. funny I mean, we haven't even talked about the way this movie is edited, which I think is probably the number one thing I like about it. Mm. I mean, what sets this apart for me from many other comedy-type movies is this editing style, because that's what makes it feel like a real kind of cop action movie. Yeah. Or, you know, because it, it has like this... I know that it's influenced by Tony Scott, because mm-hmm. I read that, and if I even didn't read that, I still would know. 
because it really has that fast editing, but it also has these match cuts that are perfectly lined up. Oh, so yeah. you know it was written to to work this way. And it's great. And, you know, I think you were talking about that editing style as being kind of a hallmark of that couple years of movies. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is around the time of Quantum of Solace, around the time of Domino, where we just had this fast editing technique that was in place to enhance the action. You know, Tony Scott directed Domino. I don't yeah. know if I mentioned that. Um, so, you know, I feel like what they did here is they used that fast editing technique, but they made it more clean. I, I don't know why. I do know why. It, it's because the clarity is there. What I felt like in some of the other films, like Domino and Quantum of Solace, they wanted to edit at such a breakneck pace, there wasn't the clarity, and you couldn't always tell what was going on. Yeah. And this, we knew exactly what was going on. And just like how you'd have a really fast quip, that's the way that they use the editing in this, like its own punchline. So I, I think that's why we have so much success with that style in this film, because I feel that it's it's very focused. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I mean, because that is, I think, the difference between something like a Domino, which I really like the movie Domino as yeah. well. We both did. But there are points in that where it is being edited so quickly in and the different takes and clips that they're editing together are already kind of fast. Yeah. So when you add a fast motion clip with an editing style that's very short and choppy, you kind of lose the thread of what's going on. Yeah. With this, we have kind of slow or sometimes static takes that are very short and choppy edited, but because the actual clip itself doesn't have a lot of motion, it, it's fine. Yeah. It's like it works and it is cleaner and you can still tell what's going on. Well, and I'm very glad for that in this film because there are so many subtle jokes that make it fresh every time that you go back. Yeah. For instance, with Timothy Dalton in his office at the supermarket, you know, they approach Timothy Dalton, Simon Skinner, and it's like, I think you committed this murder, and he is showing his alibi. And his alibi are these very conspicuous clips in the supermarket of him helping customers. There's one with him holding a newspaper with a date right in front of his face <laughs> in the middle of the store, you know. And it when they're talking to him, it's like they have a single on him, and in the background, you can still see the, the TV screen images, you know, the, the security, security camera yeah. images. And it, it just, you're just like, wow, that's perfect. And then he, <laughs> he steps over, and there's this portrait of himself smiling. <laughs> and then he smiles the same way right next to it. Yeah. It's these little touches that they bring into this film. That, that make it so perfect for me. And again, we've already talked about how he shows up at all these crime scenes, you know, with music yes. that perfectly matches 
you know, with, with the person whose house blew up, he shows up there listening to a song called Fire, yeah. right? When there had been an explosion that had blown up the home, you know, and the Romeo and Juliet every time. Because the it's Romeo, and, yeah, it's, it's, the Romeo and Juliet song by Dire Straits is such a stripped down, bare bones song. You know, it's like there's no adornment. Yeah. And that's, you know, completely the opposite of what we saw from Martin Blower and Eve Draper and their performance. Yeah. Oh, and of Romeo plus Juliet. Yeah. You know? Um, <laughs> well, and later we see a poster of the Romeo and Juliet for the community theaters after Eve and Martin are dead. Yeah. And the picture, the poster is actually the understudies. So they've already replaced the posters all around town <laughs> with the new people. And if you're not, I never saw that until this time. No, I didn't Like, either. there's so many subtle jokes going on throughout the whole thing. And again, the planting the seeds, harvesting them later. Like, the very first time we meet Simon Skinner, it's when Nicholas is having his run through the village right. on his first morning there. And this guy, like, runs up next to him and says, arrest me, I'm a slasher. And Nicholas is like, what? So what's going on? He's like, I'm a slasher of prices. Oh, God. <laughs> well, we haven't even talked about Billy Whitelaw as Joyce Cooper. Oh, no, I love her first appearance, too. Right. She's, like, the the person who's runs who runs the hotel. I believe it's called the White Owl. Okay, I never even saw that, so that's interesting. But yeah, she's running that, and he shows up on this dark and stormy night, Nicholas, to check in. And <laughs> it has, like, this whole, like, horror movie cliche thing where, like, he walks in, and she's looking down and doing crossword puzzle, and he says, I'm here to check in. And she's like, what do you mean? You've always been here. <laughs> and then she looks up and realizes it's not her husband. It's somebody else. And <laughs> he says that he's Nicholas Angel. And she says, fascist. And he's like, what? And it turns out that that was just an answer to her crossword puzzle. So she writes it in. And then they continue talking. And he goes, hag toward her and it's he's giving her an answer to one of the crossword clues but she thinks he's calling her that it's a hilarious funny scene and she's amazing she's always running the neighborhood watch scenes i believe she must be the secretary of the group okay so whether they're having the meeting in plain normal clothes with nicholas there and she's talking about somebody's new twins that were born <laughs> and then they go and they're meeting around like this ancient, you know, circle or whatever with their all their black cloaks. And she tells them what they've decided to name the children. <laughs> like, I mean, it's like she runs at the same no matter where they are. I love that. And it's very funny. Well, and she also has another connection because she was in The Omen. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. So it, it, it's just like all of these genres just really come together and there is a very strong horror element yes. in hot fuzz you know with with the killers and the cloaks the gruesome deaths yeah you know it, it's like this is a cop movie you know a buddy cop movie at that an action movie a horror movie a mystery yeah you know and it's it, like that it, it perfectly captures that fold horror 
kind of subgenre element. Mm-hmm. It really, even with the gruesomeness, it makes me think of like Midsummer, yeah, a movie that came out just a few years ago. Great one, yeah. There's like a shocking scene if you remember in Midsummer, where like you know somebody like jumps off a cliff or whatever, and it's gross. Mm-hmm. It's like very graphic and disgusting and shocking, and the people in the movie are like shocked about it in the scene. And, yeah, that's kind of the same as this. Like, it's, you know, this idyllic setting of this little, you know, village that's supposed to be perfect. But under the surface, it's, like, totally sinister and awful things are going on. It's so much like Wicker Man. It is. It's so much like Wicker Man. Yeah. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Again, Robert Woodward. You know what I mean? He's living the other side of it now. Yes, exactly. Well, and then like Straw Dogs, which they refer to mm-hmm. because of the understudy guy was an extra in it. Yeah. Um, Straw Dogs is like they moved to this country house and all these evil kind of, you know, people who live in the country are there. Yep. And, you know, so there's that too. Again, Edgar Wright really knows movies. He Simon really Pegg knows. also. Yeah. Because he wrote it as well. Um, and Simon Pegg's writing skills are, you know, evident in, like, Star Trek, mm-hmm. you know, because he wrote uh, some of the newer Star Treks as well. And he has, like, this comprehensive knowledge of that kind of lore. And we have that in this. Like, you can just tell how much they've studied, how much they know about movies, Mm -hmm. and how well they were able to translate that into a movie. Well, Simon Pegg was in Mission Impossible 3, which I think might have been 2005, prior to this. And that brings him into a massive action franchise. That's true. You know, so he has that insight from being, you know, firsthand on that film as well. And I'm sure some of that knowledge translated over to this. Oh, yeah, it had to. I mean, and he uh, he had to be very physical in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. I think he lost weight, and he was, like, you know, able to do a lot of these kind of moves. And I, I read in trivia that he was so excited to, like, get to fight with James Bond. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. If you're fighting with James Bond, I mean... How do you win? I mean, he's a bad guy, you know. So in this, it's, he's a bad guy. Yeah, he's a so. bad guy. But um, yeah, and he takes a child hostage. Oof. Which of course is Aaron A. Aronson, which is another joke <laughs> that came back from the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Andes were giving a lot of shit to Nicholas, and they're like, "What are you gonna do? Go through the entire phone book? Do you want us to call Aaron A. Aronson?" And then later on, you meet this kid, and it's like, "What's your name, kid?" Aaron A. Aronson? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Ah, it's so smart. Like, I watch stuff like this, and I'm so happy that it's so good and so mad that I didn't think of it myself. <laughs> I love the honesty of that. It's true. It's I love true. the honesty of that. Because I love it. I would have been so proud of this. Because, again, I mean, you know me. Nobody laughs at my jokes harder than me. Like, I, I think Your I'm hilarious. Your jokes are funny. A lot of people laugh. I laugh. Yeah, but you know? I still am the hardest laugher. Like, when we were clipping out a joke from, from the show for our Instagram, I'm always, like, you know, laughing harder at my own than anyone else possibly can be. But, you know, I would have I, I just quit if I did this because I would have just been like, well, can't do better than that. No, I mean, that's that's what's great about this is that they take it to the absolute limit. 
the, the, the final shootout, the car chase, all of that is crazy, but it hangs on to like the, the smallest, tiniest speck of uh, maybe it's realistic when I think about all the other action movies I've watched, sure. Yeah. And then what do we have happen? We have Tom Weaver, Robert Woodward, the yeah. actors show up, you know, from the Neighborhood Watch Alliance who has not been taken down. Yes. And he blows up the entire police station in Sanford yeah. with all of the police in it. Yes. Yet they survive. They all survive and they all have to do a lot of paperwork. <laughs> and it's just like, it's just perfect. It's just perfect because you've pumped this up so much. You know, there's like no way that it can get any bigger. And then you're just like, you know what? pop you know what i mean and it's amazing well what actually blows up the place is the the mine the old sea mine yep that they confiscated from this elderly man's like insane gun collection mm -hmm. they had like a sea mine they think it's deactivated but it's actually not so it explodes and yeah you think danny's not gonna make it they do like another kind of action movie trope mm -hmm. where it cuts to like a year later and Nicholas is laying like flowers on the grave of somebody with the last name Butterman yeah. but it's actually Irene Butterman which is you know Danny's mom. This is such a good movie with so many layers. Oh god I just love it so much I would just go watch it again right now. This one is one for me where yes if it's if it was just on television or something not that we have television in the traditional sense right we don't just comment something halfway through anymore but if that did happen i could easily watch this from any point and would because it's perfect to me this is just one of my favorites and you know i love Shaun of the dead as well i'm sure we're going to talk about that in the future oh yeah it's strong um, movie. that is another favorite of mine and edgar wright has a lot of other good movies we just watched that last night in Soho. Loved. Which was brilliantly great. Anya Taylor-Joy is such a good actor. I love her. Yes. And Diana Rigg. Hello. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of James Bond right, stuff. You know, right. Come Coming around. Diana Rigg. Coming around. But yeah, uh, even with that, I think Hot Fuzz is just kind of unbeatable to me. I just, I love it. It's my favorite thing that Nick Frost has done. It's my favorite Simon Pegg thing. It's my favorite Edgar Wright thing. And all together, they're, like, unstoppable in this one. Um, I mean, Danny Butterman is a very Chris Farley-like character. Oh, yeah. I mean, he has, like, he's a big, round man. Um, but he has, like, that same kind of high energy. And, I mean, he even has a ketchup packet joke, which Chris Farley had in Black Sheep. Mm -hmm. Um where he, like, pretends that, like, he's bleeding, but it's just ketchup packet. So, it's very funny to me. And I loved Chris Farley when I was a teenager. Yeah. Like, that was, like, his big years of Tommy Boy and Black Sheep and these great movies. So, I think that's part of it, too. There's just so many things about this. Well, the physicality. That, I'm sorry. Yeah. The physicality that Nick Frost has. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the bits that's really great is they're chasing. Oh, God. <laughs> right? They're chasing a, a, a thief. You know, this person is robbed from the supermarket and they're chasing them. And it's Nicholas and Danny. And they're going after this guy through all these, like, back roads and alleys. And there's this series of fences. And, you know, 
Nicholas Angel just like jumps over him no problem. Well, yeah. I mean, what happens is like Danny's like, oh, we're we're we've lost him because he sees all these fences, and Nicholas is like, what's the matter, Danny? You never jumped a fence before, and like he proceeds to just leap gracefully over this fence, yeah. and Danny's like, oh yeah, because this is like you know. A big, you know, cool cop move, and he just crashes right through the fence, which yes. would be a total me move. I oh, get it. I have done things <laughs> like that. I, I was leaving a concert once, and it was like to get to the car. If we jumped this chain link fence, it would have saved us like a mile. Mm. And I was like, "Look, man, I don't think I can do it." And my friend did. It was a lot thinner than me. And then I went to do it, and like I got like tangled up, and oh, like God. slammed down, and ripped the crotch out of my oh, jeans. Jesus. Oh, <laughs> that's my kind of style. Oh, so my yeah, God. that that's what I think about when you that's when you talk awful. about Chris Farley. That particular moment with with like the fence jumping or just fence <laughs> knocking downing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah. I yeah, and I just I think that that's great, and there, there's just too many things in this that really hit me where I live. And that just makes it like so perfect for me. I love this movie. I think it's the best. I hope everybody goes out and watches it for the first time or goes out and watches it again. If you've already seen it, it's so worthwhile. It's just the best. Yeah. It's a great time. I like Edgar Wright. I'm a big fan of Scott Pilgrim as well. That's another one that I can really put on. And Yeah, it's a good one. It's very detailed as well. Like, mm -hmm. I think he has kind of a detailed style. Like, I feel like you'll watch a lot of movies, especially now that you have 4K. Right. And you'll see things that you know you weren't intended to see. Mm -hmm. Because at the time the movie was made, like, the picture clarity wouldn't have allowed you to see this. But with an Edgar Wright movie, that doesn't matter because everything is so detailed down to like the letter, down to the fact that all the newspaper articles are actually written newspaper articles. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love that about this. It's yeah, this is just a really good film with really good people. And I'm really glad we're talking about it. Yeah, me too. I just I adore it. So that's it for Hot Fuzz. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, as always, come on our YouTube page now. Um, give us a like and a subscribe. Check out our Instagram. We're on Twitter, sorta. 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 We're learning. We're trying. <laughs> I'm just not a big tweeter. Um, and then next week, we have a very, very special 30th episode coming. Yes. Um, we're going to talk about Moonstruck, which we both love very much. Love so much. We're, we're huge Nicolas Cage fans, as everybody already knows. Mm -hmm. Definitely going to be checking out the unbearable weight of massive talent as soon as we possibly can. And let's also remember Nicolas Cage was in the remake of The Wicker Man, which directly ties into our conversation here this evening. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, you know, life always leads back to Nicolas Cage. I think that's really <laughs> the lesson here. I think it is. <laughs> I think that is the lesson. But yeah, the most special thing about episode 30 will not be Moonstruck or even Nicolas Cage, shockingly enough. But the fact that we have a very special guest, yes. one of our dearest, dearest friends, Kate Duffy, is going to be joining us uh, to talk Moonstruck. So we hope that you will tune in for that next week. Uh, until then, stay comfy. Stay comfy, everybody. <laughs>